good DX also has to like weigh against uh, having good user experience. So a lot of things that we do in Next is also like warning you for cases where uh, you're going to affect user experience by including synchronous scripts, or you're going to include an image tag that blocks rendering of the whole page, or uh, that kind of stuff. Like in Next 11, we we have a lot of goal system of ESLint plugins that basically warns you like, okay, this is going to be a lot better if you make it uh, like change it to to use this uh, other approach. And it goes for like font preloading, all that. And then like from from our perspective, we also try to get out of the way very often. So there are some conventions, but like we're not telling you how to do data fetching, uh, particularly like where you're getting data from, how you're getting the data, because then you you get the full flexibility of being able to to build what you want. And that has also led to basically like seeing uh, Next.js sites from like a few pages, personal websites to like massive web applications that that are served through to millions of people uh, every day. Hi everyone, and welcome to Developer Experience, a podcast by Algolia. We chat with guests who build products for developers about their developer experience strategy, what it means for them, why it's important, and so on. My name is Sarah Dayan, and on today's episode, we are going to talk about how to nail down the right abstractions. Building abstractions is at the core of API design. They become the face of your software, and they dictate a significant part of its developer experience. How to design the right abstractions? What is the difference between opinionated software and a failing abstraction? To answer those difficult questions, I have two remarkable guests with me today. Tim Neutkins is the lead engineer of Next.js, one if not the most popular and versatile React-based framework. He also co-authored MDX, an authoring format that lets you mix Markdown and JSX. Tim is responsible for many of the awesome patterns we love in Next.js and largely contributed to its skyrocketing popularity. Hey, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. Our second guest is my homeboy, François Chalifour. François is a software engineer at Algolia. He's been working on Algolia Instant Search for several years and co-authored our recommend UI library. He also completely redesigned Algolia's autocomplete library from scratch after over a year worth of work and research. Hi, Francois. Hey, Sarah. All right, so let's get started. Building abstractions is difficult. I think we can all agree on that premise. Under-abstracting kind of misses the point, but over-abstracting can make your abstractions unusable and force users to work against it. And when I look at Next.js, it's really praised for how versatile it is. And it has many examples of really great abstractions. For example, uh, get static props is a really flexible way to pass data to a page, whatever the data, wherever it comes from. When I look in autocomplete, you have things like get sources or the reshape API that open many possibilities for mixing all kinds of suggestions. So my first question uh, for you both would be, how do you approach building abstractions that solve 
problems the right way, but also stand the test of time. So in Next.js, we have pretty large premise in, in terms of like what the framework itself can do. So it basically allows you to build complete websites as web apps and go from like really small to really large like applications. And basically like the, the way that we build things is it's always been around like some of the base principles that we've had since the very beginning. For example, creating a pages directory that is mapped to route. And then that basically allows you to build on top of this core set of features that we built and enhance them over time. So an example that you gave with get static props, for example, that didn't exist when we uh, introduced next, what we did instead was we created a like API called get initial props. And we started uh, using that. You basically had initial server requests, get, uh, get initial props will be called. Uh, then when you, uh, like then the, the content that is generated out of that is sent to the browser. And then when you start navigating around, it calls get initial props on the, in the browser as well. So uh, in order to reason about that, you basically have to think about Okay, this code is going to run in a like Node.js environment, and then after that, every single page change is going to run in your browser. That actually caused a lot of like confusion and issues when Next.js got more popular because basically you'd have to to think about like okay, it's going to run here, then it's going to run here, and the environments are different. Code can break in different uh, cases, and then like how do I think about like this rendering then? Basically, this process from like going from get initial props to get static props to over like a year, year and a half or so of collecting feedback and making sure that like nail down that abstraction in terms of like making sure that you could do still do the same things that you wanted to do uh, in the first place with get initial props, but also give you the slightly more flexibility as well. Uh, so like what we landed on there is that get static props actually always runs on a Node.js environment. Um, so uh, what that means is that if you like do a request to the page, it's going to like call get static props. Uh, at least in development, in, produ in uh, production builds, it's going to be statically generated. Um, that's like a whole different thing to talk about as well. But um, basically. Uh, then when you start navigating around, it's still going to do a fetch to the server to then get the props back. Uh, and uh, the reason that we did this is that it basically optimizes two things. Like the one is we saw that with get initial props, you have to do your own caching. So that means that if you forget to like add any type of caching into your get initial props, it would be slower. Um, and then the other is that the code is all running in the same environment. So you only have to think about and reason about one specific case. And then uh, the interesting thing with get static props as well is that uh, we did some more optimizations there that you're not aware of when you're using it, but later on are going to be uh, massively important. Like when we introduced it, it was like, okay, this is a slight friction insofar that like, for example, you couldn't get access to request response like we did for uh, get source of props and get initial props. But the main reason behind that is that you can then start generating things at build time, for example, uh, or like parallelizing them across multiple workers or 
making sure that it can run in different environments as well because you don't get like variables that that are very specific to one environment so yeah like that is where like that's one example of like how we like change api surface while also adding in more features as well i'd like to go maybe uh maybe up a level when we talk about get static props because one of the big things for me and like why i think this is really from you know a user perspective why it's a really interesting abstraction is because how simple and powerful it is. And it looks kind of obvious. It's like you get a function that you name a certain way and you export it with the certain name so that the framework recognizes it. And it's just going to pass props to your component, which is your page. And the way you fetch that data is completely belongs to you. And it's a, it's a different paradigm than uh, not to say it's uh, it's less, less good, but like, when you look at something like Gatsby, which is a similar product to Next.js in terms of what it, you can do with it, um, it's different. In Gatsby, you would have to, to plug your source to, um, to GraphQL, and then you would source from basically a centralized data store. Uh, in Next.js, you don't have this concept of centralized data store. Uh, whatever the page is, it, it is kind of a contained environment. I think even every page run when you build every page it runs in a single worker or thread so you don't have access to everything else but most of the time it's fine and when you look at it at the end of the day you're like yeah it's awesome it works uh, of course they built it like that but what's the thought process uh when you're building this abstraction what's the the thought process of yeah this is how people want to fetch data some people will have files locally some people will want to maybe fetch some something on the github api and cross reference it with some something else so how do you approach designing such a core part of the framework yeah so like when we started out uh building xjs there was already this constraint of like we need to fetch data from somewhere else like it's not going to be inside of the nexus app itself per se and then like the first version of that was Basically, we need to have some kind of uh, way to to call an asynchronous function, and this is like when async await was like just a thing uh, that that people started using. Like we had to add in like async to generator transforms that kind of stuff in order to make it work. But basically, like eventually, Next didn't start out as a React framework. Actually, it started out as a framework to build uh, web applications using its own template language as well. Uh, and then like later on, uh, before it was open sourced, uh, it was changed to use React. And then like we added some sprinkles on top of React uh, at, at that point. It's, this is when like function components weren't really a thing. It was like everything was class components. And that actually allowed us to use the static keyword to get like static get, uh, get initial props. Uh, so like on the component itself, you would put your uh, like data fetching basically. And then what we said is basically like, okay, this is an asynchronous function. It's going to block, like, like before rendering, we basically block on this function call, like being called. And then you as a user can get data from anywhere. So that could be from the file system or from a, an external API. And then in general, like what we saw in the beginning is that most of the apps that were built with Next were built on external APIs. Uh, so this ended up being like, uh, like Rosal API, separate repo, lots of microservices were all being called from the front end, basically. Uh, and then you didn't have this 
like basically like this abstraction on top of okay like i need to map all the values from the api into like a graphql compatible document or anything like that or even like the api being graphql because it was all uh, microservices didn't have a centralized um like api uh router basically and this has all changed over time as well uh in case of for sale but like at the time that like that is where where it all started and then like over time we we got more and more usage and more and more use cases as well of people like either wanting to do data fetching from an external url like that is fairly simple it's a synchronous function you just fetch it from somewhere or use the sdk that like a cms provider gives you and then you you get your data back and then it renders so like that was always the thing that we wanted to preserve over time like later on we basically like started figuring out like okay how can we like we see so many nexus apps out there like simpler sites that are doing because nexus was doing server-side rendering really well so like basically what you got was every single page that you would request would be server-side rendered from the like specific uh location that the app was hosted in and it was like generally not served from a cdn but we realized that a lot of the pages that we saw and people were tweeting and, and all that uh, or gave feedback or showed us uh, stuff for showcase, these pages didn't even have get initial props at the time. So uh, what we realized is like, okay, we can make this optimization uh, sort of like an abstraction on top of like, like here's a heuristic for how can I make this page fast without actually needing the user to change anything about their app? Like they can just upgrade and it will be faster. So we started out with just static generation. So like static generation of pages that did not have get initial props, uh, which we called automatic static optimization. And it basically means that if you have a default next app and you don't use get initial props, it would just be completely static by default. Now this has some, some trade-offs as well, like some APIs that had to change a little bit uh, or like the behavior that they had because uh, of the not having the the, in, the request information it's like for example with like with the router that would be an issue um, but over time we we fixed all those as well and it basically means that like when people upgraded to that that specific version they then got a uh, like statically rendered page that would previously be server-side rendered even though they didn't have to make any changes to their app because we knew from the constraints that uh, React gives us that uh, a tree has to render without any asynchronous uh, data fetching and all that, uh, that we could render it statically based on like if you're not using Next.js specific APIs. And like over time, that evolved into get static props, get server-side props as well uh, to to basically cover a lot more of these cases. François, when when I look at uh, at autocomplete. One of the core parts of autocomplete is the get sources function, which allows you to return the sources for your autocomplete. And I cannot help but think that there might be either inspiration, at least it looks really similar to the concepts of get initial props. Ultimately, it's a function that can be asynchronous and that returns data. How did you approach that when you design autocomplete v1? Autocomplete v1 was a, a library that aims at powering such experiences. But the way that we saw search experiences at the time was that a rich search experience actually combines multiple sources. So we, we didn't want to be opinionated in terms of where you fetch the data, uh, which kind of rings a little bit uh, like uh, Tim was mentioning about Next. 
these kind of concepts are similar. But Zongompit is a, is a library developed at Algolia. So of course, we, we use mainly the Algolia search engine. Uh, this is where Autocompit really shines. But Algolia doesn't provide any features like uh, recent searches or favorite searches or, st or stuff like that, because there is no value in Algolia uh, actually um, uh, creating these kind of features. But we as a front-end team uh, realized that actually uh, rich, experiences, rich search experiences must combine these kind of different sources. So this is where uh, the get sources uh, option actually came from. Uh, but then there, there was a, another uh, concern that we had, uh, which was how do we actually transform the data that the search engines and that the sources uh, return us. The thing with databases and the web in general is that your database uh, is not a strict representation of how your website looks like. And with search engines, we oftentimes reproduce what the data structure is uh, on the backend, on the frontend, but this is not usually the friendlier way of showing the, the data. And this is where we introduce another API on top of get sources, which we call the reshape API that actually uh, handles these kind of cases. And the, the very first reason why we needed some kind of APIs like that was to remove duplicate between sources. So that was one use case that we had. But we didn't really want to introduce an API just for removing duplicates in the search results because that was quite limited. I like to think about it in terms of what we call overfitting in statistics. And overfitting is basically the, the production of something that corresponds too closely or exactly to a particular data set. And, um, it leads to having basically not matching any future observation that you get, or it's, it's going to fit the data, the data that you're training it with too accurately. So it's not going to be extendable in any sense. Uh, so we wanted to avoid this overfitting problem when designing the API, uh, which is why we um, actually use some, some kind of uh, patterns like inversion of control and stuff like that, which is also quite similar to um, get static props and this kind of APIs in Next.js. So the goal was not to just allow users to remove duplicates across their sources, but allow, to allow users to create their own functions that apply some transformation. For instance, they now can group their sources, they can sort their sources, and they can do whatever they want. They can also package the presets themselves. So the way that we designed the API is really, we provide you a hook where you can plug your own logic, but we're not going to create an option for each of the use cases that you may have. Uh, this is basically how we thought about it. One thing that I see in common in both ways of, of approaching abstractions is that is the simplicity and the attempt to stay as close as possible to the language or the underlying abstraction. Get sources is, it's a function. You can use whatever you want in it. Like you're not forced to use some other abstractions from the library. Uh, you don't have to learn things that the language already does. And I think it's also what contributes to the success of get static props. Like once, okay, I know I have to write a function that has that name and that's fairly easy to understand. I need to return it under a key called props, but that's about it. And then the rest is really up to me. So if I already understand the fetch API, if I already understand the file system API or whatever, um, this knowledge is not lost. I, I don't have to just dive into a bunch of documentation to do simple things. So like this, maybe this tendency of trying to micro abstract and only abstract when it's necessary, but stop at the level where the 
software is going to understand it, but the user can be free to use what they know. Like Next.js uses React and like they want to use React the way they understand and know React. And if you add some th- something around it or some wrapper around it, then maybe it will not be retract compatible with the, the, the next versions uh, of React. So it also contributes to the fact that they want to use Next.js. So, so I think this is one of the things that I take away from it is that one way of designing abstractions that will stand the test of time is trying not to over abstract and trying not to make grand abstractions that kind of solve everything and hide everything, but rather find the little places where you need to have the glue and consider them as, as the glue and then recognize the power of other APIs and things that are baked in in the language or the other abstractions that you use. Yeah, we usually have a, a three-layer process at Algolia when we design APIs, which is, uh, okay, can we actually leverage the APIs that we have right now and just write some guides and some documentation about it? And sometimes this is a good way to actually, over time, better understand if the feature is actually required. Do we need to build an abstraction for that? Uh, do users feel some friction when they, when they actually follow, follow the guide? Uh, this is the first step that we try, we try usually to stop there so that we don't have to build new features and new abstractions. Uh, then we try to build features as plugins. They could be add-ons, middleware, presets, and stuff like that, uh, because they are not part of the API, so they are easier to change and to deprecate, usually. And the very last layer is actually creating a core feature, uh, which is sometimes required, but sometimes it's not. And this is where we think that most of the users could benefit from it. And there is value in having, uh, in actually supporting that in the product. And one of the, the interesting things with regards to Next is that we actually don't have a plugin system per se. Um, so one of the, the conscious decisions that we made is that we give you this really low level get static props that basically uh, like solves the data fetching part and then you don't get um, like you don't need specific plugins per se it's like okay I'm going to hook into the whole system and then like have to backward, like make that backwards compatible as well uh, but instead you get this really simple uh, like async function contract where I can just import my uh, like Algolia SDK for example and they use that to to fetch data um, and use that in my components then immediately, uh, as opposed to like having to install a plugin that then provides you with the SDK maybe in inside of a function or something like that as parameters. And like one of the the interesting mistakes ish that we made with get initial props as well is that it's a function that just returns props, so that means you return an object and then that object is the the thing that you can pass to um, your component. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, there, there is a, uh, like in get static props, get server set props, you actually return props, an object that has the props key. Uh, this is very uh, like a conscious decision that we made, which was, okay, uh, if we're going to introduce this new API, we need to make sure that we like, can extend it as well. Cause, because of backwards compat, so like we're very, um, like keen on making sure that you can just upgrade to the latest version of Next uh, most of the time and have many tests to to back that up. If we were to add a feature to get initial props to return, for example, not fan page or something like that, 
we would start breaking uh, existing apps because those would be returning like not found with some other key that they they're using in their app. Um, so with get static props, get server side props, you can actually now ret- like you have to return props uh, as the the key in an object. And then next to it, we can actually return other things as well, it's like returning a redirect or returning uh, not found uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, and it basically allowed us to, like, over time, evolve the feature set of get static props, get server props as well. Uh, where previously, like, you would have to, for example, return not found as a property and then use that property to re- render uh, a 404 page in your page itself. Um, so, like, every page would be completely standalone. Like, if you would render it with the props, it would always be the same thing. Um, and like over time, we basically added in these like sort of helper features where uh, you can just return not found is going to do a lot of things automatically for you, uh, which is not possible with get initial props, for example. Frameworks and, and libraries usually strive for flexibility. You know, we want to cover many use cases and we, we, we don't want to overfit, as you said earlier, Francois. Uh, but many successful solutions and definitely thinking of Next.js in, in, when, I, when I'm talking about that have opinionated parts. So for example, Next.js uses a file system-based router. And if you want to programmatically generate pages, you can, but you will kind of have to exit the framework. You will have to uh, like write your own, your own custom server. And it's going to take a few things away from you. For example, you will not be able to natively deploy to Vercel. So it's like there is this opinion about the framework that says, this is how you should do it. We think this is how most people, if not everybody, should do it because uh, like, that's, that, that's something that, that we've vetted. That's a decision. That's a conscious decision that, that we have taken. Um, and I, I can see the kind of kind of the same thing in autocomplete JS. So autocomplete JS is the like the VDOM implementation of of autocomplete. In autocomplete JS, you can completely customize the sources, the the items, but the library fully controls the DOM and the state of the search box. So you can style it the way you want, but the way it's gonna it's gonna behave, like showing the the loader and and all of that, all of that is really hidden from you. There is no specific API to access it. So that's an opinion uh, for, for autocomplete JS is that that thing, we think that we are better off if we control it ourselves and you focus on your, uh, on your sources and your items. So my second question would be, what is for you the difference between the wrong abstraction and an opinionated one? When do you consider that it is time to be opinionated, and when should you be more flexible? The main thing that we always opted for is that the app that you could build, like, it, like Next, basically, like the, the initial commit for Next was a readme with the complete API doc for how it's going to work. Uh, there was no code involved, like there was no like, actual implementation there. Uh, the implementation actually came later. Like Kusherma basically went and wrote down like all the things we wanted to solve basically. And that turned out to be like the first documentation page. Cause like for the longest time we had to read me being the, the full documentation. And then over time, like other features were added and eventually that turned into the website to make sure that you could search it. And, uh, and like it basically got way too large for a single page. Um, 
over like basically when uh when we started because of the that core principle like basically the initial um like readme still works today except for like some uh nuances with styling for example like we switched uh styling in, in next ver version two um because of the like the initial version not being the most ideal way to to write css um but over time, like that app that you would build with like pages uh, and then like index.js being mapped to the, the root route uh, and then even get initial props, which was there from the start, um, that still works today. Um, and that was like one of the, the principles that we had, like, okay, uh, we're going to use this um, and evolve it over time uh, and then like incrementally improve it uh, based on like Feedback from users uh, initially it was mostly driven by uh, like internal needs at Vercel. Uh, so like, uh, and I'm talking end of 2016, 2017, 2018, uh, like basically uh, years ago now. Um, and uh, that was mostly because we were the the biggest user of Next. Uh, and then like over time, other companies started using it, uh, especially in 2018, like we, we saw a lot of really large companies start using it with hundreds of developers. And that's when you, you start getting a lot of like really detailed feedback on like, okay, like our, uh, our engineers are struggling with uh, like this particular way of doing things or this API or like I, I keep using get initial props, but uh, it breaks on the client side, writing is broken, that kind of stuff. And then like we start evolving that API service over time. Like basically, like initially we opted for, and especially when uh, when I started contributing to Next, uh, we opted for like adding as many features as possible. Like anything people would ask, we would add it. Um, uh, like customizing disk directories, like all kinds of stuff that wasn't super needed for the framework itself to function, uh, but did help some users uh, and during like that would be like at the time it would be like only a few people like in practice. Uh, and those features are still there. Like we we've maintained backwards compat with a lot of these uh, these initial features that weren't as ideal as it could be. So like over time, like when like we found that like there's a better new way of doing things or like making things easier, or, like evolving that, we kept the old API around, but still uh, like highly recommend using some other APIs that are like generally easier to understand, easier to use. An example is like the env key in nextconfig um, that allows you to basically create like global environment variables that you can access in client side code because they're inlined in the, the browser bundle. We evolved that to like just have uh, like you can have a environment variable with a prefix called next underscore public underscore. Put that in front of your environment variable. It's going to be uh, inlined into the browser bundle automatically. So then you don't have to add like next config items, uh, make sure that like those match up. And then even from the perspective of like you writing the code, it actually is a lot clearer that this is going to be inlined into the browser bundle as well. But we still support the env key because like people are still using that as well for, for other cases. So basically like over time, especially for next, like things evolve, but the uh, the nice thing is that they also, like in most cases, these config options don't add weight if you don't use them. Like what I mean by that is like, it's not going to increase 
brasser bindle size because we actually tree shake away features that you don't use um, and stuff like that. So if you're not using internationalized, uh, internationalized routing, it's not going to be added into the raster bundle. Uh, if you're not using env, it's not going to replace like all your environment variables for, for whatever reason. But then like also from the other perspective, we also give you full control over like the Webpack config, for example. At the time, for example, Create React Tab didn't allow you to do that. It allowed people to eject very quickly. People would basically start ejecting their app immediately when they needed to customize anything. We did allow that because uh, some people asked for it. And over time, that, that really helped the Next.js community grow as well, because like there were people creating uh, like customizations to Next.js that relied on like compilations or like Webpack or like Bubble config as well. And then like over time, we started adding a lot of these customizations by default. So like if you want to import images, you can now import images uh, using Next Image. Um, if you want to um, do the same for SVGs, that also works. Like set up. Worker, like worker threads or like web workers that is uh, supported by default in Webpack now. Uh, like all those kinds of things that you would previously have to reach for a custom configuration, you can now do by default or through a config flag. That is basically, like the, the interesting thing there is that it's actually really beneficial to not have custom configuration in your app uh, for two reasons. Like the one is, uh, we know that your app is compatible because uh, we have a massive test suite of integration tests. So we make sure that uh, those all pass on every pull request. Um, and the other is that um, we can actually start doing optimizations that you would previously not be able to do um, because you're using custom web config. Uh, so an example is if you had custom web config, uh, you would be opted out of Webpack 5 by default in order to uh, make sure that we didn't break those apps by just like upgrading to the latest Nexus version. Uh, then in a major version, we changed that so you can now opt out of Webpack 5 if you need to. Um, and then like eventually we can deprecate those options because people start na naturally moving to the new, like, the newer thing. But in, in practice that, uh, like if you didn't have custom config, so if you didn't have custom Webpack config, we would just opt you into Webpack 5 out of nowhere. Like you just upgrade next and you're on the latest uh, version of Webpack, for example. You're leveraging uh, disk caching, optimized like loader usage. Like we created a new Bebel loader that is much faster than the, the default one and added a bunch of other like caching on top of that. And that would not be possible if you have custom config in all cases. So then we have to be really like careful in preserving uh, backwards compatibility for, for those use it, users uh, that use custom config. And now like even looking to the future, like we're currently working on porting all the Next.js transforms. So like the things we do in Bevel, a new Rust-based compiler called SWC. And that's going to massively reduce build times and development iteration loop as well. Um, and in doing so, uh, like if you currently have custom Babel config, like we're going to opt you out and still use Babel for that. Because uh, obviously we don't want to break your existing app, but um, like the, the abstraction that we have of like, okay, we're going to compile it for you and you don't have to add configuration because uh, like by default you don't really need it. That's uh, really allowed us to evolve and make next faster over time. So like if you upgrade, um, like Next.js, uh, 
like 10 to 11 and you were using custom weapon config and it enables webpack 5 is going to be much faster than uh than it was before you upgraded basically yeah it's interesting and in uh, in the compute as you mentioned sarah we were opinionated about some um, ux and ui perspectives like uh, the search box we realized um, along the years that uh, when users start uh, creating their own search box, it's uh, most of the time very flooded in terms of accessibility and even usage. So our thinking process was really, um, if some people uh, should be good about building search boxes, it should be us, really. So we decided, uh, for instance, in DocSearch v3 and also in Autocomplete v1, to kind of shift um, in terms of we are not going to just append some kind of drop down to, to your own search box, but we're going to uh, create the search box for you. Uh, and this allowed us to build uh, way more complex and uh, interactive interactions uh, with the user also for mobile purposes. Uh, search experiences on mobile are quite different than search experiences on the web. So really, there was our thinking also. Um, this is one topic that we should actually uh, be opinionated about. Uh, but for the sources and for the search results, we cannot be too opinionated because this is very um, custom based on uh, on the user and uh, and the, the use case of the website that they are building. Really, could be e-commerce, it could be media, it could be any kind of um, of, uh, of verticals. Really, one thing you mentioned. Uh... Tim earlier, you, you mentioned the create React app and that it really sparked something for me because uh, so last last episode we had uh, we had uh, um, Sadek from Pressmic and Arun talking about blending in other people code bases and Arun mentioned that escape patches are so important when you're building anything really whatever and no disrespect to the create react app team like uh, i use this for for a long time but but one of the reasons that i stopped doing it and i actually moved on to to nextjs which i use for most of my projects today is that for me the line of opinions was maybe a little bit too far and i enjoy when opinions are not like dictating what I should do without caring about what my specific problem is. Because at the end of the day, when you're, you're building an autocomplete, which is already pretty focused, but when you get into it, you realize like the variety of use cases that you can tackle uh, with a framework, a JavaScript framework. It, it's probably even wider. People are going to have different problems. And for me, when I was using Create React App, and I don't know if it's different today, but I wanted to use Tailwind. And when you want to use Tailwind, you need to have a custom post CSS file. That, that's it, just because you want to use this framework. Uh, and that's not something that you, at least back then, were able to do with Create React App without ejecting. And the problem that I had with this level of opinion is that it felt like this tool that was enabling me was suddenly telling me, okay, we, we're letting you go. Uh, because you're going out of the road that we've paved for you. And what I enjoy about uh, a tool is when it tells me, okay, that's not necessarily the best way to do things. So this, you can escape that and it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be maybe a bit harder to do, but it's still possible and that it understands to what level I will need to customize something. Uh, being able to have a, a custom post CSS file 
is definitely something that many people will want. Uh, maybe having programmatic routes is not so common. And conversely, when I look at autocomplete, what I find interesting is that I can start with autocomplete.js uh, and I'm going to be able to build a lot of things. And then let's say I want to have my custom search box because this is really something that I need. Like I need to be able to do something extremely custom. I can go to autocomplete core, but what's really interesting, so I, I will have this renderless uh, autocomplete uh, like library and then I can do whatever I want, but I will have learned from looking at how autocomplete.js is built so I can pick those principles. So it feels like I'm learning at the same time, like you're learning the API and it's not like, well, now you basically have a, a project that would be what you would have built if you had done it yourself. So I would say that's one of the limits, one of the lines that I draw between the right amount of opinion and too much opinion where it might look like, oh, this is a like this opinion is a substitute for a problem that you really don't want to solve. Yeah, because like the, the comparison with Create React App, like Create React App is, is great at what it does, which is get you started using React and uh, like you don't have to set up much and, and you can get started. Um, in doing so, it's super painted about, okay, this is how you're going to do the whole compilation part. That is uh, obviously a trade-off because like the, the main thing to consider here is that um, like the example with Tailwind, uh, for example, is that Tailwind is built on top of PostCSS and PostCSS is a tool in itself. Uh, if you want to like do the performance optimizations that we're currently doing, for example, like rewriting parts in Rust, all the configuration that we give users is super uh, like limiting in what we can do. Like uh, an example is if you want to, like if you would want to move from Babel to Rust, uh, like to SWC inside of Create React App, it would be fairly a bit simpler than like for example in Next because of the custom config. So because you're allowed to add a Babel or a Babel RC into like an Access app. We have to think about like, okay, how are we going to make this backwards compatible? And then for how long are we going to support Babel as the output target? Likely very long, because we're very committed to like backwards compat. So if you have that config, you, you then have to make sure that that stays up to date as well, right? So like that you can like keep using it over time, even though you're introducing new features. The, the example I gave before, like Webpack 4 to Webpack 5, post CSS, like what if we uh, like rewrite uh, like parts of PostCSS in Rust um, or like replace it completely for like the, the basic case where you don't have custom config. Those are all things that we're thinking about and would be interesting. Uh, obviously, we're currently very focused on the JavaScript part of things. A trade-off either way. Like if you would have, like if we were super strict, we didn't have custom Webpack config, we didn't have custom Babel config, a lot of people would not be able to use Next today. Because like the moment, like you said, the moment you need Tailwind or the moment you need start components, the moment you need Emotion, uh, that kind of stuff, it all requires some custom config. Like the for Tailwind, it's uh, custom post CSS. Um, for start components, it's custom uh, Babel config. Like if you don't have that option to use that, it makes it really hard to to start using these libraries. And that especially becomes apparent when you start doing server-side rendering or pre-rendering because 
most of these tools have uh, custom transforms to make sure that the using Babel, for example, uh, like adding some extra metadata in order to make sure that hydration works in the browser. It's like that is a like an interesting case, but then also uh, by allowing you to have this custom config, it, it allows people to experiment as well, right? If there wasn't, uh, like if PostCSS didn't exist, uh, Tailwind would have been, like maybe it was something that was built, but um, it would have likely been a lot harder for like Adam to get started uh, building that. Um, and then obviously like it, it was kind of the reverse in the beginning. So it was like a big CSS output and now it actually is like a lot smarter and like, can generate CSS for you on demand. Um, but like basically like these tools or the, these compiler uh, libraries like have allowed a lot of experimentation, like have allowed stock components to be created, uh, that kind of stuff. From our perspective, like config is not bad. Like if you have to use config, it's totally fine. But we also have to make trade-offs of like, okay, this is what we're going to optimize in Next and like port to, to SWC, for example, like custom transformed. Right now, like in Next, for example, you have five, six custom bevel transforms. We ported all of those to SWC as well. So like they're all native in Rust uh, as well now which also in practice means that we have to maintain two versions of it, which is also from the user perspective, like this is something that a lot of people don't really see, but like, uh, like maintenance becomes infinitely harder when uh, you start like basically diverging on like some tools. So like if you start uh, like, because the config is there, you have to maintain that specific config option, but then also the version if it's not enabled, right? Uh, and then like the version when it's not enabled could be a lot faster because there is no like artificial overhead that people could introduce into the the application. Everyone makes mistakes, right? Especially with early versions like V0s, V1s, like when you don't have enough user feedback most of the time. And sometimes you can rectify things, uh, but sometimes you're too far off and you need to start over. How, in your opinion, do you gracefully recover from the wrong abstraction? It becomes super hard to remove something once it's introduced. So what we generally do is that try to spend a lot more time thinking about, okay, if we introduce this, what is it going to solve and how long is it going to make sense to maintain it? And then like for most of the new things that we're making, we basically make sure that it can be maintained for quite a long time. Uh, but then also we already have like different solutions inside. So like an example is get static props, get server side props could actually go away when uh, newer versions of React are released. So React 18 and then like suspense based solutions actually and to allow us to further evolve get static props, get server side props without some of the restrictions it has today. So like over time, the libraries that you use are going to evolve and you sort of have to evolve with them. And like from our perspective, like we we're always trying to make sure that like it's always backwards compatible as well. Like even if we introduce a new feature, we still are going to maintain the older feature. And like in Next 11, for example, we removed some features uh, that had been deprecated since Next 4 or something like that. Uh, so like we keep, even keep deprecated features for quite some time. But it really depends on like how much the maintenance burden is as well. So like. Like WebEx 4 being deprecated very soon is going to mean that in the next major version, but we've com communicated that all already for quite some time, it's going to be removed in the next major version uh, so that we can then basically focus on making sure that the 
the one case of WebEx5 is a lot more performant than it is today even. And in, uh, in the instant search libraries, we, we made a mistake at the very beginning, which was to abstract some kind of search concept into what we thought as friendlier uh, APIs. But in the end, these APIs were, were too high level and users could not achieve what they wanted to with them. Uh, so that's uh, one example of when we had to uh, basically use incremental recovery uh, by introducing new APIs or tweaking existing APIs to allow users to basically uh, send some custom search parameters to the search engine. Uh, so we created two APIs for that. Now uh, we consider that instant search is kind of as powerful as the uh, underlying mechanisms, but it took some time to actually recover from that. And also we kind of lost a little bit of credibility among the community uh, because of this uh, kind of mistake, which is uh, why I think it really all comes down to communication, even with the community. So to recover from a wrong abstraction, usually as long as you actually explain the community um, why it wasn't made that way, and now they will be able to actually uh, do it because of a new API and they can actually understand it, uh, usually you're fine. But really, to me, it really um, comes down to communication. Uh, another example where we actually um, kind of run when we were not victim of like a, a wrong abstraction, but an outdated abstraction uh, was uh, when we created autocomplete v0. So the, the previous version of the, the current library, it was started in uh, 2015. It was originally a fork of the typeahead.js library. And the library uh, autocomplete, the autocomplete library uh, became like in maintenance mode very shortly after because the code base was too hard to contribute to. And we thought that it was sufficient to build search experiences at the time with this library. But the search ecosystem grew uh, and search is now um, present in most of the apps. Uh, search is actually the foundation of the experience in most of the apps now. Think about Google Maps, Amazon, YouTube. You couldn't really use these apps uh, now without search. So we were observing such a gap between autocomplete v0 and the search experiences that we could design that we decided to start from scratch. So this is a, a rare case where we actually took the decision to start from scratch, which is usually um, a risky decision. Uh, so six years later, 2021, we released Autocomplete V1. Um, we consider it as a good abstraction nowadays because it allows you to build way more complex search experiences. So um, I don't think it was necessarily a bad abstraction at first, but it was definitely an outdated abstraction. Yes, uh, I, I like what you said also on, on communication. I, I think like sometimes, okay, you realize it was the wrong way. We learned something and we're going to move on. We're not just going to stay stuck in that, in, that, uh, in that scenario. But what's important is that you communicate and also that you own it. Explaining why you failed, uh, going above and beyond to ease the migration whether it's with a guide, like a really, really well done guide, or maybe maintaining the old version a little bit more if it's necessary. Um, there are really good examples. For example, uh, Sadek uh, on the last episode uh, mentioned that whenever they do, they break the API, for example, the schema of the content, they will take the migration on themselves for paying customers. Uh, and maybe it's even free customers, but I know at least for 
uh, a set of uh, maybe business or enterprise customers, they will do the migration themselves because they decide it's on us. Like we, we broke it. So if we want people to use the next version, especially for them, because it's a, it's a hosted service, um, we, we have to, to, to do it ourselves. And I think it also can be interesting is to, instead of just going like, yeah, this was crap, let's move on. Maybe take a little bit more time to identify the root causes of what led to those like faulty abstractions because mistakes usually don't don't happen in a vacuum. Usually there are some some patterns behind it. We were in a rush. We were too unexperimented. We did not talk to customers enough. Uh, we forked something because we wanted it to be easy, but because we were in a rush. So trying to reflect back and maybe post-mortem or, you know, root cause analysis, I think can be, can be beneficial, even if we usually want to move on and just go to the next thing because we think we know what to do. Because we also tend to repeat mistakes when we, we don't take the time to externalize them. And again, this is one of the, the things that I, I really love about uh, both Next and, and Autocomplete is, uh, is the concept of micro-abstracting and modular, modularizing your abstractions, making sure that you don't build this whole monolithic system that whenever you tweak something, you're going to pull down the entire, you know, house of cards. Um, that to me is super important, being able to say, okay, we build that thing, but if we change it to more, like we don't have to deprecate the entire thing, uh, like we don't have to go Next.js 20, just because this function no longer works. So trying not to couple all your pieces together so that, yeah, uh, you have like this kind of huge drips of glue that make everything not even touchable. So I will, uh, before we wrap up, I will ask you the traditional question of the, of the show. How do you define great DX and what is your personal level of expectations? It's about generally three things. So like one is that you get your update. Like if you make a change, the update is there as soon as it can be. So as, as fast as possible, uh, which is what we've been working towards uh, pretty heavily for next uh, to make sure that like, if a change is really small and it doesn't touch like large parts of the code base um, or like you're importing a new library, it's going to be there in uh, like less than 100 milliseconds. That's the, the goal that we have. Uh, so like that's the, the first thing. Things have to be really fast. And it's just like it goes from booting up the dev server to uh, opening pages. Uh, like we do all of that on, on demand for Next. Like we don't even start to do work uh, when it's not needed. Uh, but we do try to do things optimistically. So like when you boot up the Next server, it's going to optimistically compile some of the files that we know that, that you're going to need either way. Then there is the errors. So a thing that is generally overlooked is that if an error happens, it generally is not super helpful. Um, so if you're using a library, it's going to throw an error. It's going to say like, okay, this value was wrong or something like that. But in general, like what you see very often is that it's not um, as helpful as it could be. Like, why did it throw that error specifically? Like, okay, I'm passing in a string. It should be an integer or something like that. Those are the simple cases. The complicated cases are like, I'm using uh, get static props and I'm returning some value that doesn't exist. But what are the other values that, uh, that could be used? 
and or like you make a typo that kind of stuff things that we could detect like hey you're making a typo you can fix it in this way um so what we do for next is actually like sent uh with every error or at least most of them at this point we sent a uh, specific link to the documentation with special pages specifically for those errors so anytime an error is added what we do is we actually add a documentation page as well in the docs messages uh, folder um and uh, that's going to explain why did the error happen okay you put in the wrong value or like you're using the like you're holding it wrong that kind of stuff and uh then gives you an like a way to investigate it or to fix it uh so it, it tells you why uh and then like how can i fix it and then also all the documentation around it so like useful links that that you could read through as well uh and that's been really good because that also we expanded that onto like also collecting feedback from those pages. So we get a lot of feedback from people that run into errors and then say like, okay, this was not helpful. Or like, I fixed it in this way, please add that to the document because then then other people can benefit from it as well. A really big part of, of development is actually like reading errors and figuring out what is going wrong. And then the, the third thing is that it also like the, the good DX also has to like way against uh, having good user experience. So a lot of things that we do in Next is also like warning you for cases where uh, you're going to affect user experience by including synchronous scripts, or you're going to include an image tag that blocks rendering of the whole page or uh, that kind of stuff. Like in Next 11, we, we have a lot of goal system of ESLint plugins that basically warns you like, okay, this is going to be a lot better if you make it uh, like change it to to use this uh, other approach and it goes for like font preloading all that and then like from from our perspective we also try to get out of the way very often so there are some conventions but like we're not telling you how to do data fetching uh, particularly like where you're getting data from how you're getting the data because then you you get the full flexibility of being able to to build what you want and that has also led to Basically, like seeing uh, Next.js sites from like a few pages, personal websites to like massive web applications that that are served through to millions of people uh, every day. Yeah, good DX for me is really um, about focusing on my application features and not necessarily on the platform or the infrastructure features. Uh, so as as you said, Tim, basically getting out of the way of the developer. And some examples could be. Um, Headless UIs like Radix primitives or stuff like that. If you want to create a context menu by yourself, it takes some time and I tried that. And basically you waste so much time on the logic of the component itself and that you could actually invest in your uh, application uh, that it's, it's a waste of time. So to me, GoodDX is actually providing me the tools that, I, that maybe the platform should have uh, provided me. Other examples could be Next.js. I don't need to understand that my root is going to trigger a Lambda function somewhere in some server. Uh, I don't really need to understand that as a user or as a developer. Uh, so this, to me, uh, is what DX is about. I like also thinking about the fact that there are so many projects that we start and we don't finish uh, because we hit a roadblock or we hit like, oh, yeah, that config thing or that. As you mentioned, team, like errors, I think for so many years have been like the, the worst DX uh, of like the entire software uh, development field. 
because you see something and you don't, you have no idea what to do with it. And it's like, it's t- telling you the consequence, but doesn't tell you anything about the cause. And so, yeah, to me, it's really similar to what you just, uh, the, you just described Francois. It's like, give me a head start, but don't pick a path for me. Like, there are things I want to do. Don't do them for me. I want to do it. It's, it's going to be fun. And it's also the value that I add with my program. There are things that I don't want to do. And there are things that I shouldn't do, no matter where I, I want to do them or not. And Grade DX really lets me do everything I want to do, relieves me from what I don't want to do, and convinces me not to handle what I should not be handling because uh, the library or the framework is going to do it like a million times better. I, I, you know, I don't want to configure Webpack. Like, I know I don't want to do it. Uh, I don't want to worry about my Google Lighthouse score. And even if I enjoy that, I don't really, I should probably not configure my own server, but I want to craft the website of my dreams, like down to the tiniest pixel with the libraries that I love. I like, it's not going to be, Next.js is not going to be my entire life. I want to use Tailwind. I want to use Radix. I want to use whatever autocomplete. Uh, and same for autocomplete. I don't want to read the ARIA specs for combo box. Like, I don't have time for that. Uh, I should probably not try to rebuild an autocomplete solution, even if I think it would be fun. Because yeah, when, when you see that it takes uh, dedicate, people who are dedicated to, to the problem a year to come up with like a really robust solution, I would probably not nail it down in, a, in an afternoon. But I want to be able to grab suggestions from anywhere, any API, any static file, and you know, dynamically control uh, like the, the, the behavior of all that. And that's what I should be focusing on, especially knowing that my excitement will fade away after a certain period of time. And if I want to ship, I need to be helped in a way that I'm already ahead by using the right tool. So where can people go to find you online? So for me, it's just uh, my full name as my handle pretty much everywhere. So like on GitHub, Twitter, been tweeting a bit less uh, the past uh, few months, mostly because just been really busy with, with building out Next.js features and uh, performance improvement. It's a lot of good things to come there. If you want to learn more about Next, you can go to nextjs.org slash learn. Uh, it's an interactive tutorial that, that guides you through, through basically building a Next.js app uh, all the, the features that we talked about today is like get static props, get service or props, how to use CSS, uh, all that. We're also uh, hosting a conference very soon. So um, on nexus.org slash conf, you can register for a free ticket there. Cool. And you can find me on GitHub uh, with my full name, lowercase. And on Twitter, uh, my name is actually too long for Twitter handles. So it's Francois Chalif, <laughs> Francois C-H-L-F-R. All right. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at frontstuff underscore IO, which is the worst handle ever. Uh, and you can also find my work at uh, my full name. So Sarah with an H, Dayan.com. Uh, if you want to learn about autocomplete, you can uh, go on our fantastic short URL, alg.li slash autocomplete. You will find the documentation and you can learn anything about Algolia at algolia.com. Team Francois, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was really a fascinating conversation. Went over time and I wish we could do a, an extra hour. Listeners, I hope you had a blast. Thanks a lot for uh, following Developer Experience and stay tuned for the next episode. 
This was Developer Experience, a podcast brought to you by Algolia. You can find this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Overcast, everywhere. If you want to know more about Algolia, check us out on algolia.com and we are at Algolia on Twitter. <laughs>